Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Jennifer Roberts about her new history of the Peloponnesian War, entitled The Plague of War, Athens, Sparta, and the Struggle for Ancient Greece, now published by Oxford University Press. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. It's very good to be here. It's great to have you here. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I teach at the City College of the City University of New York. Um, I enjoy my teaching very much here. I teach Latin. I teach some Greek at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Uh, I teach Greek and Roman history at City College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. I've been teaching here for about 25 years. I've taught at other places before here, but I've enjoyed teaching at all of them. I've taught at private universities and public universities. I was born here in New York. It's nice to be back here, but I also feel that I've profited from being away. So is your specialization uh, Greek history or Roman history? Uh, I started out in Roman history, but I was writing a dissertation that just absolutely wasn't going anywhere. And then Richard Dixon resigned. Now, you might think that this would have very little to do with the subject matter at hand, but... I went to Donald Kagan, who was then the head of the classics department at Yale, and he said to me, so how's your thesis coming? I said, uh, not so good. And he said, well, is there anything else that interests you? And I said, well, and I told him that I was kind of interested in studying impeachment in the ancient world. And there wouldn't have been much future in studying impeachment in Rome since Roman politics was completely corrupt. But he said, but what about Athens? And he said, come into my office. So I went into his office, and by the time I came out, I had completely switched not only thesis topics, but thesis advisors. And I wrote a dissertation on impeachment in classical Athens. And at that point, I stopped being a Roman historian and started being a Greek historian. And I've been a Greek historian ever since, and that was 
1970, oh, I don't know, whenever it was that Nixon resigned. I'm embarrassed to admit that I can't remember, but it was in the 70s. So what was it that led you to write a book about the Peloponnesian War? Well, um, we do get back to Donald Kagan a bit. He was a uh, famous scholar of the Peloponnesian War. I took uh, undergraduate and graduate courses with him about the Peloponnesian War, so that was one thing. Another thing was that my father was a veteran. He had served in World War II. And my mother was also in the war, although she was not in the armed services. She was in the Red Cross, which is how they met. Uh, my mother was from New York City. She was Jewish. My father was from Georgia, was very much not Jewish. Uh, their parents were quite taken aback when they married, uh, but they certainly never would have met if it hadn't been for the war. They met in Australia. My father was a captain in the army, and he had a problem getting something for his men. I don't remember what it was. I'm not sure I ever knew. And he had tried and tried and failed and failed. And finally, when he walked into my mother's office, he was at his wit's end. But my mother figured it all out, and the result was my sister and me. So uh, they got married, moved to New York, and uh, named us after two Australian girls they had met down there. And uh, my father was obviously very much affected by his war experiences. And you might say that I sat down with my father and talked a lot about war, but I didn't. I was very frightened of war. I was a child of the immediate post-war era, and I didn't fully understand that it was over. Uh, my parents talked about the Holocaust a lot, my mother being Jewish. And whenever I saw planes in the sky over our backyard, I was terrified. I was afraid they were going to drop bombs. I wasn't sure the Nazis weren't still going to come and get me. So I, I was very afraid of war. Um, but I forced myself to study war in college and graduate school, and the interest hung on. I think that experience comes across very well in the book, because one of the things that uh, distinguishes this book in, in terms of your approach is you're looking not just at the period of the Peloponnesian War, but you're really fitting it into the context of Greek history in the uh, 5th and 4th century worlds. And one of the things that really you make very clear is that it was a, in, it was a world in which war was a constant presence, even if they weren't necessarily waging war at that moment. It was one in which wars were you know, very much commonplace in terms of events and, uh, and defining relations between the various city-states. I was wondering if you could explain a bit more about that before we start talking about the war itself. Yes, uh, it was, in many ways, the default position for Greek states that they were at war. Uh, peace was unusual. People joke that in ancient Greece, once in a while, peace broke out. We think of Athens in terms of its beautiful temples and its vases and its great tragedies. But in fact, Athens during the classical period was at war two years out of every three. And uh, the Greeks' great poem, the Iliad, was about war. And the Odyssey, although it was not technically about war, technically 
It was about a married man's longing for home and his attempt to get home. It's also about a great deal of violence that he does when he is tempted by adventures on his way trying to get home. He's constantly distracted from the attempt to get home by possible things that he might do other than getting safely home. So, you know, this is, these were the Bible of Greek civilization, the Iliad and the Odyssey, epics about violence. So it was something very ingrained in the Greek character. Uh, the earliest Greeks, the Mycenaeans, we call them, who left these huge fortifications on the Greek mainland, um, the Mycenaeans were raiders. They were pirates. And uh, when, when Odysseus is, is washed up on an island and the king there asks him, are you a pirate or a merchant, he's not at all offended by the idea that he might be a pirate, but he's very offended by the idea that he might be a merchant. So the Greeks certainly did not regard war as something that was necessarily to be avoided. Did they, 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 did they see it as a tool of politics like any other, or was it, uh, did it have a, a broader meaning than that? No, it was, it was certainly a, a tool of politics, and they, they weren't squeamish about it. Uh, the Romans were only very mildly squeamish. The Romans needed to claim that all the wars they fought were defensive wars. And so they would, for example, make an alliance with a city that was about to be attacked. And then the city would, of course, be attacked, and the Romans would go in and claim to be defending it. This was standard Roman procedure. Um, but no, the Greeks, were, the Greeks were quite comfortable with war. But, you know, they, they did sometimes, of course, go through the motions of not wanting to be the instigators. Uh, at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, the Spartans, having already declared war on Athens, still went to the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi to ask for advice. And Apollo said that uh, if they went to war, he would help them, but did not say yes, you should go to war. <laughs> so even <laughs> Apollo was a little bit uh, nervous. So the, the Sp Spartans were a little bit squeamish about going to war. So, you know, there were reservations, and there was a lot of poetry written by Greek intellectuals in favor of peace, but the average Greek in the street was not a poet. I think it, another factor that came into play, as you describe in the book, is that the city-states were not uniform, that city-states had different interests and concerns, and that, as you explained, that sometimes shaped their attitude towards this issue of war. I was wondering if you could explain to us briefly what the environment of the 5th century world was like uh, uh, at that time with regard to the city-states that were in power and how and the relationships that existed between them in the run-up to the uh, Peloponnesian War itself. Sure. At the outset of the 5th century, 
mainland Greece was attacked by Persia. At that time, there were a large number of different city-states in mainland Greece. If you think of the Greek world as extending beyond mainland Greece, you have little city-states ranging from, say, 150 people to 400,000 people, which would be the biggest, maybe, Athens. And I'm not sure Athens was ever 400,000, but tiny to big. And you have these spread all over from Spain to Ukraine, from Sicily to North Africa to Istanbul to Italy. They're, they're all over. And these states must have added up to about 1,500 Greek states. And they worshipped the same gods, and they spoke the same language, more or less. It was a very wide Greek world. But they did not share a common government. They had different kinds of government. Some of them were oligarchies. Some of them were democracies. Sparta was unusual in that it had two kings from two different royal houses. Well, at the beginning of the 5th century, the great Persian Empire decided to annex Greece. And King Darius sent over some men, and that didn't work out so well because it resulted in the famous Battle of Marathon, where Athens and its ally Plataea defeated King Darius in 490. Well, ten years later, round two, King Xerxes, the son of Darius, who has since died, brings a vastly larger group of soldiers from all over the Persian Empire wearing all kinds of different costumes, all kinds of different weapons, and that results in the famous battle of Thermopylae, the 300, King Leonidas of Sparta. And that doesn't go so well for the Spartans. <laughs> they all die except for 200, but they, you know, they, they make time for the rest of Greece by holding the pass for a while. And the next year, the Greeks defeat the Persians, and the Persians are sent packing. But the Greeks were very nervous, because they think the Persians are probably going to come back. Now, they didn't, but the Greeks weren't, you know, psychic. They didn't know the Persians weren't coming back. So they decided to form a league against the Persians. And that is what eventually leads not inevitably, not inevitably by any means, but eventually to the Peloponnesian War because Athens winds up leading that league, but the Spartans, the Spartans already have their league. They have a league centered in the Peloponnesus where the Spartans live called the Peloponnesian League. So you have on the one hand a league, a naval league, it has to be to get to Persia, a naval league led by Athens and a league based on land power led by Sparta. Are they going to get along? 
Well, maybe, maybe not. It's in 478 or 77 that the Athenians form their league, and the Spartans already have theirs, and they manage not to go to war with each other until about 460. And then a war breaks out, what we call the First Peloponnesian War, as opposed to the Peloponnesian War. And Sparta and Athens aren't specially involved. It's their allies who are involved. But, you know, they're a little bit involved, and that goes on for about 15 years. And it ends in something we call the 30 Years Peace, thus named because it lasts for 15 years. (laughs) So that's where we are when it gets to be in the 430s. Now, and that's when things get really bad. Now, is the outbreak of war in the 430s the result of a sudden series of events, or is it more of a lot of simmering, unresolved issues left over from the uh, First Peloponnesian War? That, that's a really interesting uh, question. There, there was one result, unresolved issue, which was that one of the provisions of the Thirty Years' Peace was that neutrals were free to join either side. And there was one neutral, which was the island of Corsaira, which is the modern Corfu, which had a major navy, and it was not allied with either side. And it had gotten into a conflict with Corinth, which was the major naval arm of the Peloponnesian League. And they were nervous because they were unaffiliated, and they thought Corinth was about to attack them, which was very possibly true. And so they went to Athens and asked for an alliance. And imagine being an Athenian at that time. You're nervous. There's tension between the Athenian League and the Peloponnesian League. And Corsaira says, we, we're in danger. We would like to have an ally. Can we join your alliance? But you know that if you accept them into your league, then you are in trouble with Corinth, who is very powerful in the Peloponnesian League. But if you don't accept them, then they might go over to the Peloponnesian League, and that's really bad because they have a great navy. That was a probably the most serious meeting of the Athenian assembly ever to take place up until that time. And the Athenians debate, and finally they decide to make a defensive alliance only with Corsaira. Well, that's not very helpful when you know Corsaira is about to be attacked. I mean, it's just as good as making an irregular alliance. So that was a problem left over from the 30 years' peace. The other issues that arose didn't really have to do with the 30 years' peace. But there were several issues, not just one. And they had mostly to do with Sparta's allies and not with Sparta. And they had a great deal to do with uh, Corinth in particular, because Corinth had a uh, colony which belonged to the Athenian League. That may sound weird, but Greek colonies were politically independent. They weren't at all like the British colonies in the Americas, not at all. A colony was just supposed to you know, show deference and share religious festivals, but they were politically completely independent. 
and Corinth had a colony which was a member of the Athenian League, so it had divided loyalties, and that created some trouble. But it had nothing to do with the Thirty Years' Peace. So some of them did, and some of them didn't, but they weren't directly Spartan issues. They were issues affecting Sparta's allies, but Sparta couldn't afford to neglect the wishes and fears of its allies. Your description raises this question that I I kind of had as I was uh, reading the book, which was that you had this, uh, you described the context of the 5th century Greek world as city-states that are allying, fighting, and you point out how it's not just Athens and Sparta. It's they, they have allies and they have and their colonies, and that, as you explain in, in your narrative, there is oftentimes uh, uh, these city-states can themselves be very important actors. Why do we focus so much upon this war in particular? And, and and why do we focus so much upon this Athens Sparta dynamic, which is often t- which can sometimes be a little distorting? That's a, that's a very interesting question, and I, I think there are a few answers. First, this war in particular, because of Thucydides. Thucydides was a remarkable ancient historian who is greatly revered, sometimes I think a little bit too much, because he does sometimes distort things and leave out important things, but he wrote the history of this war, and he served in this war, and he had very detailed sources, and because Thucydides wrote the history of this war, people take it very, very seriously. Because the war went on for so long, because Athens and Sparta were such ideological opposites, because there is such a disproportionate amount of evidence for Athens compared to other Greek states, because Sparta was so weird there isn't very much evidence, actually, for Sparta. But Sparta is so remarkable. I mean, if you think about Sparta, a state with two kings concurrently, that is bizarre. A state where when boys are, we're not sure if it was seven or 12, but when they are boys, they get taken from their mothers and placed in military academy where they sleep on rush mats made from rushes they've pulled up from the icy Eurotas River and then woven together, where they have to go barefoot to prepare their feet for the rigors of war, where they aren't given enough food, so they're always hungry, and they always have to steal food, but if they are ever caught, then they're punished. This is a very strange life. There is a story of a boy who was so hungry that he stole a fox. And when muster was called, he hid it under his cloak. And he was absolutely silent while the fox nibbled away at his organs until the fox hit a vital organ and the kid fell down dead without having uttered a sound. Now, you know, that's not a normal place. And probably the weirdness was somewhat exaggerated in the telling. 
But when you have Athens as a state which is really over-documented and Sparta as a state that the ancient sources portray as so weird, uh, they're both very conspicuous ancient states. And so we do pay a lot of attention. Thucydides said something interesting. He said that if Athens and Sparta should fall into decay and be ruins, people would probably think Athens was greater than it really was, and people would probably think Sparta was less great than it really was. There does seem to be a bit of prescience behind that, considering the... the reputation of Athens today in, 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 popular, in the popular imagination. Yeah, and uh, the, uh, the Athens-Sparta duality uh, has constantly come up in modern uh, comparisons, the idea that Athens is America and Sparta is Nazi Germany, or Athens is America and Sparta is the Soviet Union. I mean, these are constant comparisons. Uh, so the, the conflict between them has been given an ideological tinge that it really didn't have at the time, probably. You also, the, the contrast really comes across militarily as well, as you were describing, that Sparta has this reputation as the uh, foremost land power in Greece, and, and Athens has this great naval reputation. How did that play out uh, as the war began? Well, as the war began, it, it became clear that it was going to go on for a long time. At the beginning, Pericles, the Athenians' great statesman, thought that they could win by not fighting. That He knew that the Spartans and their allies had crack infantry. In particular, the Spartans' allies, the Thebans, had totally over, had totally over them in terms of infantry, and he, he didn't dare fight. He told the Athenians that what they had to do was all come in from the countryside. Pretty much every Greek city-state, except for Sparta, of course, was the city and the country. And he had, years before, had walls built linking the Athenian city, Athens, with its port, Piraeus. And these were formidable walls. And he said, you all have to come, bring as much as you can of your possessions, huddle inside these walls in the fighting season, because Greeks didn't fight in the winter. Huddle inside these walls, let the Spartans and the Thebans come and ravage the land. They'll get tired of this, and after a couple of years, they'll give up. Well, they didn't give up, but he thought that was the way to win the war. It was going to be a war of attrition. And the Spartans figured, well, we're going to go and ravage their land, all right, so they won't come out and fight with us. But after they see us ravage the land for a couple of years, they'll give up. Well, you know, nobody gave up, and Pericles died at the very beginning of the war. That, that stalemate does seem to have been a factor in how the war, why, why the war lasted as long as it did. Oh, but absolutely. Another factor, though, that I, I that 
comes across in your book is, and maybe this is because of the nature of our sources, are the role these major personalities play. You, you mentioned one of them as, as Pericles. Uh, another one that, that stands out is Al- Alcibiades, and, and, and then there are other figures that you uh, see in the narrative. And how these, oftentimes, the, the, the changing fortunes of the war are, are shaped by these individuals who propose these uh, gambits or who uh, decide to uh, you know, uh, join the war or leave the war. And, and that really seems to be the key to how the events break out of this stalemate dynamic that, uh, that uh, characterized so much of its uh, course. Yes, uh, there was a lot of stalemate in the war. This is not a war that is mostly characterized by its great battles uh, because of the stalemate element. The, the Athenians made a lot of mistakes. The Spartans made a lot of mistakes, although there were a lot of just plain coincidences, weather events, what have you. But the Spartans needed to have built, uh, I shouldn't say this in a way because the Spartans did win in the end, but it was a terrible mistake not to have built a navy way earlier. Uh, The Corinthians, who were allies of the Spartans, did have a navy, but the Spartans talked and talked about, no, we ought to build a navy, but they didn't, uh, and they really should have. Uh, But that, that, that was one mistake. Uh, the Athenians couldn't really do anything about having more and better uh, soldiers. Uh, they had good soldiers, but they, they, needed, uh, they needed more of them. And you can't really do anything to change the fact that the Spartans spent their entire lives in military academy, and the Athenians were normal people. <laughs> they spent uh, most of their lives farming, and then whenever war came up, they would be called up and they would serve. But uh, you can't change the fact that the Spartans spent their whole lives training. So that is certainly one thing. But there were, uh, there were personalities. Uh, there was Pericles, of whom we've spoken. Then Alcibiades was a reckless kind of guy. Uh, his father had died in battle when Alcibiades was a toddler. Uh, but uh, Alcibiades' father was related to Alcibiades' father or was it his mother? Alcibiades certainly was in Pericles' family, and he went to live with Pericles, he and his brother, when he was a toddler. Apparently his brother was even worse than he was, but he was pretty bad. And uh, he was said to have killed a slave with a stick. I don't know if I believe that one, but he would do things like lie down before a chariot in the road and make the chariot stop. He went into the assembly with a quail under his cloak, and then the quail escaped, and everyone in the assembly went crazy. He hit a teacher because the teacher didn't have a copy of Homer. He he was absolutely impossible and drove Pericles to distraction. He was the complete opposite of Pericles, who seemed to have been born as an adult. Alcibiades never grew up. Anyhow, when Alcibiades uh, was old enough to become a general, he persuaded the Athenians uh, that it would be good to accept the offer of their allies in Sicily to go and 
sail off with a huge expedition to Sicily to defend them against the encroachments of the most powerful city in Sicily, which was Syracuse on the East Coast. And uh, they went. And another Athenian general who was older, Nicias, pointed out that this was not a good plan, but they did not listen. And Alcibiades boasted of his Olympic victories. He belonged to the horse he set, and he had entered a number of chariots in the Olympics, and he had won. And uh, so off they went to Sicily, and Nicias did not do a good job in listing all the things that they needed. And as soon as they got there, Alcibiades was recalled because he had profaned the mysteries of the goddess Demeter. And he knew that profaning the mysteries by enacting them in his house in front of people who were not initiated into the cult was punishable by death. Now, I know, I know this sounds totally crazy, but it was punishable by death. And he enacted these religious rituals in his house knowing that it was a punishable by death kind of thing to do. But that was Alcibiades for you. <laughs> so when the ship came to pick him up in Sicily, he says, oh, all right, but I have my own ship with me, so I'll come back on my own ship. And like idiots, they let him. And of course, he didn't come back to Athens. He went to Sparta and defected and told them all about the Athenians' war plans. I don't think the things he told the Spartans were actually true, but he did not go back to Athens. So this left Nicias, who was not the brightest bulb, in charge of operations there. And let's say just quickly, they did not work out. The Athenian generals were executed. The men were put in a horrible, dank, huge cave in Syracuse. And as the men died, they were just left heaped up in a pile in the cave, their bodies decaying so that the men who were still alive had to look at them and smell them. I was just at that cave a couple of weeks ago, and it's just chilling to be there. So Alcibiades spent some time in Sparta, where he probably impregnated the wife of the Spartan king, and then when he wore out his welcome, he went over to Persia, and finally came back to Athens, where he wore out his welcome again, <laughs> and then he got murdered somewhere in the east. The, the, that expedition is uh, oftentimes seen as the turning point in the Peloponnesian War, but as you explain, it's not... It, you know, Athens' setback doesn't necessarily mean Sparta's victory. How would a Sparta do to eventually resolve the war in their favor? Well, it's so complicated. It's a miracle that Athens didn't just, you know, throw up its hands and say, I give up. Um, there were revolts in the Athenian Empire. Uh, you know, the empire struck back uh, all over. People said, well, you know, they're not going to be able to you know, hold things together after this. But the Athenians found a number of good generals, one of whom actually, to be fair, was Alcibiades, and they won a number of battles. Uh, but they also had Lysander to deal with. Lysander was a high admiral in the Spartan navy, 
and he was conniving. It was said that he cheated boys with dice and men with oats, and he, in 407, I guess, went over to Persia and uh, met with Prince Cyrus, the son of the king, and persuaded Cyrus to give him a serious amount of money to raise the pay of the Spartan sailors. And with this money, he also managed to siphon off a large number of sailors from the Athenian Navy. So that was one important thing, and also the sheer genius of Lysander was important. And the demoralization of the Athenians after they had done something incredibly awful. The strains of war do make people do terrible things. The Athenians won the next year a major naval battle and they destroyed a huge number of Spartan ships and they lost a few ships too and then a storm came up and they were debating whether they should go and relieve one of their other admirals who was blockaded somewhere or whether they should retrieve the men who were in the water from their own ships that had been disabled. And while they were debating, this storm came up and it became impossible to retrieve their men. Well, at first there was great jubilation at home when they learned what a great victory the Athenians had won. And then when they learned that the men in the water had not been picked up, they were horrified and they ordered the generals at the battle to come home. Well, Two of them did not. The other six did. There have been eight generals at the battle. And there was much debating in Athens about what to do with the eight generals. Long story short, they killed them. They decided that winning the battle was not as important as having left the men in the water. Many of the men were dead already, but leaving a body unburied was very important to the Greeks. That is, important not to do it. The that soul to... would wander. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, the soul would wander forever in the underworld. And the guy who had was in charge of putting the motion that day, chosen at random, was Socrates. And he wouldn't put the motion, but they rammed it through anyway. So they were very demoralized after that because, of course, they realized right away what they had done. And they were also down several experienced generals. So when Lysander, having drained the navy of a good number of its sailors, dashed up to the Hellespont, uh, they followed him and managed to get bottled in. And he captured the whole navy of 180 ships with the exception of a handful under the very smart Admiral Conan who escaped. And that was it for a while. That was the end of the war for a while. 
and the institution of a horrible oligarchy under Lysander. That the execution of those generals, as you made clear, was a reflection of just how much the war had changed the Athenians. You mentioned at the beginning of the war, uh, defeated, disgraced generals might face exile or some other punishment, but. By that point in the war, after about uh, a, a decade and a half, two decades, the, the Athenians are, are much more ruthless in the handling of their own commanders. And it gets to the, the, this idea you talk about in the book about how the war affects the city-states. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about that. I mean, you just described how Athens uh, had an oligarchy introduced uh, it, uh, that, that ruled for a period of time, and, and how other city-states were also transformed by this conflict in, in ways that, that had very lasting repercussions. Uh yeah, um, this is this is true. Thucydides comments on that there was a brutal civil war in uh, Corsaira, as I said, the modern Corfu, um, where uh, fathers killed sons and people killed themselves to avoid being killed by others. And Thucydides says that it didn't tend to happen so much in peacetime, but it continued to happen throughout the war because people on each side, the Democrats thought they could bring in the Athenians for help, and the oligarchs thought they could bring in the Spartans, which was in fact true. Um, so civil war broke out uh, throughout the wars, I mean, th throughout the this Peloponnesian War, and it was, it was quite uh, ghastly. But, you know, people killing members of their own family. Also, people were killed in temples, which is a terrible impiety. They really, it, it, the Greece that emerges does seem to have been changed in some pretty significant ways, as you describe. And that's one of the things that your book does, that, that so few uh, histories of the Peloponnesian War have done, which is you talk about the the decades or so that followed as part of this contiguous whole. And the point, one of the points you make that in the book is is about that, which is how you're not so much seeing an end to the war in 404 as a shift in how it's being waged, and that's something that we oftentimes don't talk about in the Peloponnesian War. We treat 404 as though it was uh, some sort of concluding point, like the way we do, say, 1945 or 1865 in modern history. Instead, it's you know, uh, in this plays to your to what you talked about early in the book. You know, the wars continue. It's just that now the dynamics are changed, and ironically, in ways that makes Sparta in the end as much of a loser as Athens. Oh, uh, if if not more so. I mean, what the, in Athens, of course, the most dreadful fallout of the war is the execution of Socrates, uh, who had been friendly with Al who had been a teacher of Alcibiades and a close friend of Alcibiades, as well as of uh, some other people who had been friendly with the Spartans. In Sparta, uh, the Spartan state had uh, gained a great, but also Spartan individuals had gained a great deal of money from the war, which meant that the rich began to be richer and the poor poorer in theory, in theory 
no one had been rich in Sparta and no one had been poor in Sparta, but that wasn't exactly true. And some people were so poor that they fell off the citizen rolls. And uh, gradually throughout the 5th and 4th centuries, for this reason, but also because of deaths in war, uh, the Spartan the Spartan population, and by which I don't mean their slave population that worked the land, but the full-blooded Spartan citizens shrank and shrank and shrank, so that from 8,000 at the end of the Persian Wars, it shrank to a few hundred by 371. And it was an absolute disaster, and their 4th century king, Agesilaus, just had total tunnel vision, never occurred to him that there might be creative ways of approaching the problem. Uh, you know the old saying, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, Agesilaus saw everything as an opportunity to make war on somebody. And he was a little bit like Alexander the Great. All he could think of to do with his energy was to make war on someone. And it was devastating for Sparta, at least with Periclean imperialism. He had meaningful goals. And with encouraging the Athenians to enter into the Peloponnesian War, there was a real threat from Sparta, like the Spartans had declared war on them. But uh, with Agesilaus, who became king in 400 in Sparta, he immediately began gumming up the works by attacking everyone he could. He immediately invaded Persia at a time that the world situation was very unstable, and he needed Persia as an ally. Then war breaks out in mainland Greece because Sparta's previous allies, Thebes and Corinth, very close and important allies, have been treated so badly by him that they've allied with Athens, his worst enemy, to make war on him. Well, after a few years, the king of Persia intervenes and declares a peace and makes Sparta the guarantor of the peace, so technically Sparta has won. But then the Spartans make people so angry that Persia has to intervene again, and they keep trying to have things called a common peace again and again, and a Spartan general seizes Thebes, and Agesilaus says, well, I guess that's all right. <laughs> and then a Theban, another, another, not Theban, a Spartan general tries to seize Athens, and Agesilaus says, oh, I guess we don't have to punish him. <laughs> and it, it's, it's completely crazy. Finally, in 371, the Thebans have really built up their strength. They're not allies of Sparta anymore. And in 375, a band called the Sacred Band has been developed in Thebes. It's not entirely clear when it started, but it's 300 pairs of male lovers, and they are really good at fighting. And, of course, they want to fight. Plato seems to have written about them. They want to fight well because they want to distinguish themselves in front of their companions. So, in 371, everything comes to a head. And it shouldn't have been allowed to happen because Agesilaus knows about the sacred band because the sacred band in 375 had defeated 
a larger Spartan army. This has never happened before. So Lithuanus knows that he has to watch out for Thebes, but oh no. So there's a, another peace conference of many, the last of many, at Sparta in 371, and they make an agreement on the basis of autonomy, and so Athens signs, and all of Athens uh, allies sign separately, and Agesilea signs, and then Epaminondas of Thebes signs, but on the next day he comes back and he says, no, because Thebes has a league too. Thebes has a league of all the states in the territory of Boeotia. So Epaminondas comes back and he says, you know, I'm going to sign for all Boeotia. And Agesilea says, no, in that case, you're not signing at all. And Agesilaus thinks he's done something wonderful because he's isolated Thebes in the world of Greek diplomacy. No. So the other Theban, the other Spartan king, King Theombrotus, encamps on a plain called Leuctra, which goes down in Greek history as an enormous turning point because... Cleombrotus is there, and the Boeotians encamp there too. And King Cleombrotus and his royal guard wind up facing the Theban forces. The Thebans are marshaled 50 men deep. Can you imagine? 50 men deep. The normal depth of a Greek line is 8 to 12. The Thebans have a wedge, 50 men deep. In front of it is the sacred band. In front of that, they and Cleombrotus have the cavalry. They go at each other, and, you know, there are some other Spartans spread out. There are some Boeotians spread out. Well, it does not go well for Cleombrotus. This is the first time a Spartan king has died in battle since Leonidas in 480, 490, sorry, no, 480, 480, died defending the Thermopylae Pass. So Leonidas, 480, dies at Thermopylae. Cleombrotus, 371, dies at Leuctra. And with him, dies the power of Sparta. And yet, and yet it, doesn't, it, doesn't it doesn't end the war. The wars, as you, you know, point out in the end, don't really conclude until finally these city-states are conquered by Macedon. I suppose you could say that, yes. But I think I would say that the person who was responsible for weakening the Greek city-states was Agesilaus. I mean, you know, some people would say it was the Peloponnesian War, but I would say that it was the, you know, bullheaded aggressiveness of Agesilaus throughout the 4th century who just couldn't think of anything else to do with himself when he woke up in the morning except make war on someone uh, that made it impossible for the Greek states to come to any kind of harmony. I think I think after the Peloponnesian War it was not hopeless. But 
I don't know. The Peloponnesian War was not a good thing. But then one name that we haven't brought up here today is Plato. Uh, Plato, Socrates' pupil, founded his academy in the 4th century. And, of course, Plato's pupil for 17 years at the academy was Aristotle. Many good things came out of the Peloponnesian War. Greek philosophy came out of the Peloponnesian War. One of the things you do in your uh, book, we haven't mentioned this, is you reference, uh, you integrate into it uh, Greek theater. And you point out how relevant so many of these plays were, in, in particular the uh, the plays of Aristophanes and how they commented on it. And, and how that, so in a sense, that great uh, literary tradition, which we still treasure to this day, is, is, is also a product of this very fractious period of history. Yes, Aristophanes was very much a war poet. Uh, he wrote a little bit after the war was over, not much because he died. Uh, but uh, Aristophanes' heart and soul went into criticizing the war. His first plays uh, were written after the war had begun. Uh, one play that I talk about a lot is his play, The Knights. Uh, which criticized Cleon, who was, you know, an interesting politician. Uh, he uh, seemed to follow the aggressive foreign policy of Pericles, but he had, what should we say about Cleon? He had no couth. Um, he uh, was said to, you know, wave his arms while talking in the assembly. Uh, it was Cleon who would be in favor of executing entire populations in cities instead of just the ringleaders of uh, revolutions. And Aristophanes was uh, very much an opponent of Cleon. He, he also wrote an extremely interesting play, which is uh, the most famous comedy, probably, of the ancient world, the most famous tragedy being Oedipus Rex, but the most famous comedy, which is Lysistrata, and which is performed very frequently in the modern world about the women of all the cities of Greece banding together and having a sex strike until the men agree to stop fighting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely hilarious. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I'm working a lot on preparing my graduate course on Homer, uh, which is a lot of fun. I adore Homer. I'm teaching the Iliad in Greek in the fall, and I haven't uh, done that for a long time. I've taught it to undergraduate students. I haven't taught it to graduate students for a while, so that's part of my time. I'm trying to decide what to uh, what to work on next. I, I might do a book on the kings of Sparta. Um, I might not. Uh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really not sure. Uh, so that's a... I have a project in... I have a project in mind which is a little bit classified since I don't think my publisher would want me to talk about it. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the answer you wanted me to hear. You want to, you want to tear. We'll just have, we'll just have to you know, keep checking to see uh, the, the day in which your publisher does announce the book. Yes. Well, well, Jen, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. It's, you too. <laughs>